Good morning. Today's daf is daf Samach Dalad. I'm going to go from the 10th last line of Samach Gimel Amud Beis, 63b. Um, today's shir is Le'ilu Nishmas Arye Henoch Ben Mordechai Kohen and Ben Sion Ben Ze'ev Avram Halevi. May they have a Le'ilu for the Neshamos and a long life. And, and may the memory be a blessing. So, now, um, so yeah, after after doing an, a few a bit of agarita, or I mean, it was half halacha, half agarita about the severity of uh, of paskining before one's rav. The Gemara returns to the initial discussion of the Mishnah, which was remember you can't make it if you have an eruv where people have it. It works basically the same with the chotzer and a mabui. So at the moment, let's not distinguish between them. But let's say you have a few houses that open into the Mabui, or you have a, a few Chotzeres that open into the Mabui, or you have a few houses that open into a Chotzer, so you have the common area, or the Mabui is the common area. If one person doesn't join in the Eruv, one of the people who have rights to that area, that oises the Eruv, it invalidates it, because it's still then everyone else's plus that person. So it still goes from private to more general. So that's why it doesn't help. And what we were discussing, what the, the, what the Mishnah was discussing, the first Mishnah of the Perek, is discussing what happens if there's a non-Jew. Uh, you have a complex, uh, ten, 10 families, and one of those families is a non-Jew. And what happens, or the Maboy, one of those Chatzers opening into the one of the Chatzers opening into the Maboy is a non-Jew. So we brought a Machloikes in the Gemara. So, okay, so, so uh, sorry. So, an uh, an akum does oiser the um, he does forbid invalidate the eruv. So, if one of the families that have rights in the common area is a non-Jewish family, he does invalidate it. And how do you? Um, yeah, there's a machloikes if it only invalidates it if there's. If, if it only invalidates it if there's two or more non-Jewish families, or even only one non-Jewish family. So let me just check that I got that right. Sorry, if there's only one Jew, or if there's even two Jews in that area with the non-Jew, that common chotzer, etc., Um, what was the reason? Yeah, so, so sorry. Let me rephrase that point. That point is there's oh, there's a machloikes whether this that a non-Jew invalidates the eruv of the Jews. Is it only where there are two or more non-Jews? Sorry, not 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 non-Jews. If there's two or more non-Jewish families, or even if there's only one Jewish family. So let's say you have a complex. And there's one Jewish family in the complex. Can he make that, let's say, the Eruv with the Mabuy, or can he make an Eruv without all the non-Jewish family? Or does, or is that only, do the non-Jews only invalidate the Eruv if there's two or more Jewish families? What was the reason for this? Why do non-Jews invalidate an Eruv? So the Gemara brought a very interesting thing because Chazal wanted to discourage us from staying with non-Jews. I wanted to discourage us staying with from non-Jews so that we don't learn from their acts. 
and therefore they said that it, they made it quite complicated to make an Eruv with a non-Jew because if it gets too complicated, too difficult, then Jews aren't going to want to stay there and therefore um, that's, how they, that's why they made it that a non-Jew invalidates the Eruv. And then yeah, one final... So that's, yeah, I think that's enough information at the moment. Those main points. Oh, how do you make an Eruv with a non-Jew? You rent or bar their rights from them. And again, they said, oh, isn't that an easy way out? No, a non-Jew is going to get very suspicious if you come up to him and say, can we, every Shabbos, can we rent your rights? You know, he's going to get suspicious and therefore um, he's not going to be so keen to do it. And it still makes it a little bit difficult. And therefore the non-Jews, well, and therefore it again discourages Jews from staying with non-Jews. Okay, let's go into the Gomorrah. So the Gomorrah says, There was a Mavoy, and one of the people who dwelt on that Mavoy, who had rights to use it, was this non-Jew, Lachman Baristak. They asked him, please rent us your property for Shabbos. And La Ogolohu, he wouldn't rent it to them. As the Gemara mentioned, he's either, he doesn't trust them. What do you mean you want to buy my property? Not a chance. Or rent my property, not a chance. Or he was afraid of witchcraft, but he didn't want to. So also, Amru Leila Abaye, they came to Abaye, and Omru, and they wanted to know, what can we do? How can we set up an Eruv in the Mabui? There's a non-Jew staying there, and we, there's nothing we can do. So Amru Zilu Bitlu I'll tell you what to do. All of you negate your Rishus to one of your families, to one, to one Jew. And then it's one Jew staying by a non-Jew. And when there's one Jew staying amongst non-Jews, he doesn't invalidate it. Remember, that's what I mentioned. There's a machloikes. If you have one Jewish family, does this gezerah that a non-Jew, this part of the gezerah that a non-Jew invalidates the Eruv, apply? So he's obviously with a Ruvin, Abai is telling them you can go lenient and say it does not apply when there's one Jewish resident. Therefore, if you negate all your property to the one Jewish resident, then it's fine because there's one Jew and the non-Jew doesn't oise the Eruv. So Omrulay Midi Diary. Isn't the whole reason for the Xaira is that you don't want lots of residents for Diary? But here there are lots of Jewish residents by this non-Jew. So how does it help to mavatel your rishus? It's again, it's against the reason of the Eruv is that you don't want a few Jews staying by the non-Jews. This, that Jews would negate all their property, cancel their property to one Jew, is also not so common. The and the rabbis didn't make the Xaira in unusual circumstances. Again, what's the normal way for Jews to join together, to be able to carry, is with an Eruv. Once in a while, if one of them forget to do an Eruv or whatever, he can bitul rishus, he can negate his ownership to one of them. But it's not so usual. So as soon as that's the mechanism you're using, he's saying you're not going to run into trouble with Xerah because that's very unusual. And rabbis didn't make the Xerahs in unusual scenarios. So that's what Abaya's solution was. Again, the question to Abaya was, we've got this Mabui. One of the people whose houses open into the Mabui is a non-Jew. So, he, so how do we get around that? So what did Abaya advise? He said, Mavatel all your Rishus to one of you, so now it's one Yisrael staying by a non-Jew. 
and that's not a problem. And the Xayra doesn't, and there the non-Jew won't oyster the Eruv. So also Rav Huna braid Rav Yeshua and Amr Lishmaisei came into Rava. Rav Huna braid Rav Yeshua went and told over the sugya to to Rava. So Amalei him came but batalta Torahs Eruv ma'oisa ma'boy. Rava says, but then you've cancelled out the law of Eruv from that ma'boy. Um, yeah, you've. Uh, People are going to forget and carry without an Eruv because you're allowing them to carry. So he says, no, Dema'arvi, Rava said we must make an Eruv. I granted the Eruv doesn't work because there's a non-Jewish family staying there. He told us to make an Eruv so that people don't think that you can carry without an Eruv. He says, oh, But if you made an Eruv, then people are going to think that you're allowed to make an Eruv where there's a non-Jewish family and it works. Which, as we've just said, an Eruv does not work where there's a non-Jewish family. He says, no, Demach Rizim, they made an announcement. They made a declaration that we're not making this Eruv because it works. We're making this Eruv to, so that we remember the concept of an Eruv. So, the Gemara, so then Rava says, no, that's not good enough. Is that announcement going to work for all generations? I granted the ten adults and their friends who discussed this law, they will know why you made the Eruv. But that the Eruv doesn't really work because there's a non-Jewish family staying there. And the only reason you made it is so that no one comes to carry without an Eruv. The children are not going to know that. The children are just going to remember. They're going to, they're going to grow up. They're going to stay in a Mabui. And they're going to remember, well, my father made an Eruv even where there was a non-Jewish family. Therefore, why can't I make an Eruv where there's a non-Jewish family? And he won't realize that it wasn't the Eruv that was working. It was the Biturushah. So therefore, Rav is not happy with this solution. El Amarovah. Rather, Rav gives a different solution. Why don't one of you go and befriend him? Become a good friend with this non-Jew. And then, And um, borrow some place, a place in his chotzer from him or in his house, and ask him to store something there so that you become like a worker or a, you know, two different types of workers. A schiro is a daily worker and a lictor is farm people that they would hire just for like the harvest season. I mean, if you're a farmer, you don't need workers the whole year round, so they would hire people just... Um, when they want to harvest, etc. So he says, and vo- so that's his. So that so far we're halfway into Rava's solution. Firstly, befriend him, borrow a place in his courtyard, and then you like a worker from him when you go in and put your stuff there. If you have a Jew or a non-Jew working for a non-Jew, a Jew, sorry, if you have a Jew working for a non-Jew, even that Jew can make the Eruv on behalf of the Jews. Very interesting. The Jewish employee of a non-Jew can sell the rats or give the rats or just by using it sufficient to make the Eruv with the non-Jews with um, the non-Jews property. It seems why that works is because when when everyone sees this Jew going in and out of the non-Jews property in a way as his worker he has rats in it. And therefore he can make the Eruv, I guess we can use the term, make the Eruv on behalf of the non-Jew, even though the non-Jew's not involved. So that was Robert's solution. So Abayah says, Oh, you're telling me that a worker is a significant resident. I, that almost the worker can make an Eruv on behalf of his, 
owner, uh, of his, uh, not owner of his employer. Like this Jew who works for the non-Jew, he can make the Eruv of the non-Jew's property. Because he's going in and out, it looks like that's what he's doing. But if you're telling me that he's significant enough, almost he's considered a resident that he can make the Eruv, what happens if you have five of them, if you have five workers in one house? Do they each have to contribute to the Eruv? Again, if, if one worker can make the Eruv on behalf of his non-Jewish master, maybe, uh, employer, maybe if you have five workers, he can do it. So he says, no, I'm late. No, this that we allow the employ the employees of a non-Jew to make the Eruv on his behalf is to go lenient. Where do you ever see that we said that solution to go strict? Okay, so that ends that discussion. How you can get around making an Eruv for a non-Jew. means something that we would have discussed if we started at the beginning of the period, but you can think about how do we make an Eruv in the whole of Johannesburg? How do you get permission from every single non-Jew to join them in the Eruv? And maybe you have a solution for if you have someone, a house or something where they're Jews working in that house or something. But in general, so interestingly enough, I think the general way they do it is go to like the police commissioner or someone like that who has rights in every house. He can, uh, he can get into every house, the police. So therefore he can sell the rights. Of they can do this deal, make a thing with the with the police commission. I'm not sure how they do it in Johannesburg, but that is one of the ways of setting up the Eruv. Okay, next point we're going to discuss a point we mentioned, we just mentioned. If you have a Jewish employer of their non-Jew, he can give the Eruv on behalf of his master. So Amar Nachman, said, Wow, that's an amazing, that's a brilliant Khirush. Love that idea. Omar of Yehud, Omar Shmuel, Shosser of Yain Al Yoyre. So then, totally independent um, halacha, but it seems to be part of the same discussion. He says, I've got another teaching in the name of Shmuel. It says, Shosser of Yain Al Yoyre. If someone's drunk a reviews of wine, they are not allowed to paskin. So Omar of Nachman, Loi Ma'alia Ha'ishmaisa, Doha'ana, Kol Kamet, Loi Shesina, Revisa, Dechamra, Loi Tzididate. Rav Nachman said, well, I don't like that teaching, because until I've had my reviews of wine, I can't even think clearly. It's like his morning cup of coffee. He says, I can't get going until I've had my, my glass of wine. So I don't like that teaching that you can't pass if you've had a reviews of wine. So interestingly, so the Gemara says, Tim, my time, how can you say such a thing? How can you come along and say, wow, that's a beautiful teaching, I love it. Ah, oh, that one I don't like, that teaching I don't like. What's the, the drosh on the Pasuk which says someone who's a friend of Zoinos, of prostitutes, will lose his wealth? It says, It's a play on the word Zoinos from Zenoe. Um, anyone who says I like this phrase in Torah and I don't like that phrase of Torah um, he uh, loses his share in the Torah so Amalei Harabi says oh I regret saying that so very interesting just on this last point what have we said without getting into the halachas Rav um, Yehudas in the name of Shmuel he said a teaching that um, and he said two different teachings. On one of them, Rab Nachman said, Wow, I love that idea. On the other one, said, Oh, I don't like that idea. And he said, You shouldn't say that. The Postuk says, Someone who says he likes one area of Torah and doesn't like another area of Torah will lose his wealth. Um, so, how far do we take this? 
Maharsha says, the Maharsha, that's a commentary in the back of the Gemara, says um, you should never say, wow, I love this piece of Torah. He says, why? Because you're implying that other pieces of Torah you don't like. And how can you say that about the Torah? It's Hashem's wisdom. How can you say, well, I like, uh, like Masechah's brachas, a ruvin I don't like so much. How can you say that about the Torah? So that's the Marshal. Others are a bit more lenient, like the Rashash says, nah. Um, he says it's only where you contrast two parts of the Torah and you say this one I like and that one I don't like. Which in my mind makes a, a bit more sense because all we know there are a few teachings. I mean, obviously I think we have to appreciate the value of every part of Torah, whether we actually enjoy learning it, whether we actually really understand it or not, you've got to appreciate the value of every word of Torah. Whether you're learning about Korbanos, whether you're learning about Eruvin, whether you're learning about Kriyashma, um, whether you're learning about Sukkah, you have to appreciate every value. And whether you're learning about technical details in a law, or whether you're learning morals and ethics and Agarita, you have to appreciate the value of, of every Torah. But we do see um, certain statements which say like, learn if you, what are you when you learn, learn what your heart desires because people don't really learn what they're not so interested in. So in my mind, it makes sense more. Don't say about a piece of Torah, I don't enjoy that, or that part I enjoy, that part I don't enjoy. But to be able to at least think in your heart, there's certain areas I prefer. I don't think. I mean, I struggle to think that as a as a difficulty. Again, obviously, also if you hear a drosha from a rav, you would not be allowed to say, "Well, that was a good drosha. That was not a good drosha. That could you're running into trouble with lashon hara." But that would be a different concern. Yeah, it's just when you're going through your learning to say, "Oh, that was a nice stuff." You run into trouble with the sugya, with this this idea of uh, saying one piece of Torah is more um, is nice and another is not nice. Okay, once we've brought up this discussion of someone who has drunk a revius of wine is not allowed to paskin, that's now going to take us on a tangent to discuss this idea of uh, drinking wine and paskining, and it will be for the rest of today's stuff and tomorrow's stuff. So, Amar Abarhuna Shosu someone who's drunk wine cannot daven. But if he does daven, it's a valid tfili. It's a valid tfili. Shikur al Yisbalel, a drunkard, a person who is drunk, and not someone who's just had some wine, someone who's actually drunk, al Yisbalel, he should not daven, im Yisbalel, tfilos ta'eva. If he does daven, his tfil is what's called a ta'eva, an abomination, which means it's invalid. I, if he sobers up and it's still time to daven, he would have to daven again. A tfilot, uh, um, where we say tfilos tfilot means he shouldn't daven, but if he did daven when he had just had a bit to drink, that's fine. But if he was proper drunk, we'll define these measurements soon, then it's actually invalid. It's an invalid davening. Now, what is just someone who's drunk and someone who's actually drunk? says, Like when um, these two sages, they were departing from each other, taking leave of each other. By the fairy... Um, by the fairy of Nahar Yufti, he says, let's each give over an idea that neither have heard before, because we learned in Masechah's Brochas that you, 
whenever you're departing a friend, you should give over it. it should, you should depart with words of Torah so that you remember your friend. I don't know if you remember, we discussed this um, in Maseches Brochas, that uh, for various, there were various reasons there, but I think one of them is whenever you think of that piece of Torah, you'll remember your friend. So that's a good way to depart. It says, um, One of them started, so, so one of them, one of the, the Joshua of the wine was, what's considered someone who's just had some wine and what's considered someone who's actually drunk? So he says, call shik shisui, call Someone who's just drunk that they, they shouldn't daven, but if they do daven, they feel as valid, is someone who's able to stand before a king. Shikur kol And a drunkard is someone who would not be able to spa- stand and speak, speak before a king. Let's just, before we discuss it, read what the other ones, Joshua, because remember they were each depart, they were two friends taking leave. They each gave a drosha. So what was the second one? If someone gets nichseager, what should he do that they lost by him? What's nichseager? So we know every single Jew has a relative. At least because you can always go back to his father and his grandfather, his great grandfather, and you'll find some distant cousin, some distant relative. So if Chatzvah Shalom, the Jews niftar, and he doesn't have close relatives, you'll find someone who inherits his property. But a convert, remember, we treat a convert as a newly born person. So if a convert dies without, dies without children, he doesn't have any relatives. So who inherits him? His property becomes ownerless, and whoever gets there first and does a Kenyan gets it. So what do you do? Rashi says, people speak. If they see, you, you know of a convert who was Niftar, and you go to his property and you acquire it, you get his car, his house, his bank accounts. Um, all of a sudden, you went from a regular person, you, you got this windfall of wealth. So what do you do with everyone speaking badly about, well not, not necessarily badly, but everyone bewildered and discussing how you had this windfall? How do you keep it? What mitzvahs? He says, Yikach Bohen Sefer Torah, you should get a Sefer Torah. Ah, he says, it seems almost because of this iron horror, the way to protect your wealth is do a mitzvah with it. I buy a Sefer Torah. Omer Afilu This is not limited to someone who only gets their wealth because they um, got nifsei gear, even if their wife brings in a whole lot of wealth to the marriage. So now all of a sudden they got a huge windfall. They should also do a mitzvah, give a, um, need to do a mitzvah so that it lasts. It almost, it seems, as a counter to the Ein Hora. Rav, Rav says, even if you do a business deal and it's very successful, you should do something to... Do a mitzvah with it. Rav Papa, Omar, Afilu, Matzo, Matziah. Rav Papa says, even if you find a lost object, again, that's a windfall that you put in no, uh, um, yeah, a windfall and you gain it. Says, and Omar, Nachman, Ba Yitzchak, says, you don't necessarily have to write to say, for Torah, Afilu, Kosa, Bahut, Filin, even if you write Filin. V'Omar, Rav Chanin, V'Tamer, Rabbi Chanina, my Kara, and Rav Chanin, and some says, Rabbi Chanina says, what's the Pasuk? When they were going to fight the, I'm trying to remember who it was, I don't know if it was the Mijanim or some um, people, they took a neder that they would give some of their spoils to the Beis Hamikdash, to, to the temple, to the Mishkan. 
and that protected them. That mitzvah enabled them to, their tefillahs were answered and their enemies were defeated. So let's just analyze these two statements we have. Firstly, the one that we started with, the one that was relevant to our sugya, was what's considered a drunk, someone who can still daven, and what's considered someone who can't daven, someone who, for, after having had some alcohol, if they're able to stand before a king, are you... Uh, you have a meeting with the president and you have a glass of wine, would you still be able to go and speak eloquently, make your case before him, ask what you need? If you can, then you can still daven. If you're drunk to the degree that you wouldn't dare go try and make your plea, your case before the king, then you definitely can't daven. Why does it make a lot of sense that this should be the determining factor, whether you can speak before a king or not? So, the Amida, we view saying the Amida, this is specifically by the Amida and not other parts of davening. And that's why we find many, many restrictions uh, or halachas regarding how you have to stand and behave and, and, and all requirements when you're davening the Amida. Because when you're davening the Amida, we view it as if you're literally standing before Hash, the king, Hashem. So, that's what, so, if you could theoretically go respectfully before a human king, okay, we'll let your tefillah... Be a tefillah before Hashem. But if you would not, you're not able to stand before a human king, it's hugely disrespectful and not um, inappropriate to try stand before Hashem and daven when you're all standing before the king of kings. The second Joshua we were discussing this windfall. So interest, just a few points on it. Um, it seems if you get an unusual, uh, the, it ranges from how much of an unexpected windfall, undes- I don't want to say undeserved, obviously everything is deserved, but how, um, if you put in no effort and get a huge amount of wealth, well the one opinion says even if you put in a bit of effort, but you get an extra large amount of wealth from it, you should do a mitzvah with that, you should do a mitzvah with that money, to keep the money, I to counter the Yetzirah to keep the money. Why should you do that? So the Meiri says, very interesting, I might be paraphrasing and changing it a little bit, but the Meiri says along the lines is you have to, as Jews, we know that when we get bracha, we have to acknowledge it's from Hashem. And one of the ways of acknowledging that your wealth is from Hashem is saying, I don't need it all. I can use some of my wealth to do a mitzvah. If your wealth is your own hard work and your own acquisition and purely through your uh, speed of getting to the gear's car first, and that's why you are the one who acquired it and you're the one who gets it. If you view it as totally based on your own thing, well then, you shouldn't have to, then uh, it's a waste to spend it on a mitzvah. It's uh, unnecessary and a waste, and uh, why should you? But if, as you should, recognize Hashem, and when there's brach in your life, um, acknowledge Hashem for it, well then it makes a lot of sense to use some of that money for wealth. Um, yeah, I was just, I know my grandfather's sure. He says a lot of people have this idea that when they get something good, they say, we don't speak about it. We're scared of the iron horror. He said, no, if you get something good, you should maybe not uh, speak to everyone about it. But he says, you should analyze and think, what did I do to deserve such bracha from Hashem? I must carry on with those practices. I must, and everything you receive from Hashem, you should appreciate and, and recognize that it comes from Hashem, even, especially maybe, even when it's bracha and good things. And therefore you do a mitzvah with it in a way to show that you realize it's 
Okay, Hashem's given you wealth. I know, interestingly, the Vilna Gaon says, um, on, in Sefer Rus, the Vilna Gaon says, the only reason a person is given wealth is so he's able to do tzedakah with it. He's not excluding from a wealthy person being allowed to live comfortably and use his money. But he says the only reason a person is given wealth is to be able to do tzedakah with it. So that's, I think, quite a, an astounding idea and something that we have to think about. Just once this touches on tzedakah, the Yav, there's a question. You know, we, we have a practice of give, trying to give 10% of our wealth as tzedakah. What is that obligation? And there's actually... A whole spectrum. Of, I mean, obviously, when you ask a question like that, there's going to be a, a, a spectrum of opinions in, in uh, the poskin. But on the one extreme, there are those who hold it's an obligation to Orisa. This, that you have to give 10% of your wealth, would be an obligation to Orisa. There are others who hold, no, it's only a chiv draponim. It's only a rabbinic obligation. This, that Orisa, you're obligated to give 10%, etc., is, as we know, only worth grain and trumus and masrus and those things. But this, to give uh, your money, your earned money, that's only a mitzvah drabonin. And most, I, th- I think it's most opinions, are even more lenient and hold. It's, a, it's not an obligation. It's a good practice that Jews have accepted upon themselves. That's a minag. This, that we give 10% of our wealth, is a minag. And the Yavetz has a long tshuva discussing this. And one of his points is, well, I guess, yeah, why is it not an obligation to give 10%? He says it's too hard. Not everyone always has the financial means. Not, always, not everyone always has the, the, the means and the, maybe even the heart, the constitution, to give away 10% of his wealth, or some even learn it as 10, 20%, to, just, to other people. So he says they couldn't make it an obligation, and therefore it's only a minnow. Interesting, one of his proofs is this Gemara. He says, Al-Gamorah. Al-Gamorah says, if you get a huge windfall of wealth, what mitzvah should you should do a mitzvah with that wealth? If you have to give 10% to tzedakah, well, you've already done a mitzvah with your wealth. So why would you have to go buy Sefer Torah, um, buy Tfilin, do you know, do some other mitzvah with it if you've already given 10%? So he actually wants to bring a proof from Al-Gamorah that it's clearly not an obligation to give tzedakah. Okay, let's go... Let's go on. Back to the discussion of someone who drank and now he needs to daven. So the Gemara is going to ask, how do you sober up? So, Omar, Ramibar, Abba, Derech, Mil, Vishayna, Kol Shehu, If someone walks a mill, that's actually a mill is 2,000 Amos. So they work, it's about a kilometer. Someone walks a kilometer and sleeps a little bit, it dispels the wine. Rav Nachman said the name of Rabbi Baravua. That's only where he drank, only a revius. If someone drank more than a revius, walking um, bothers him, it confuses him. And sleeping brings out the... Um, having a little nap will bring out the drunkenness. Ah, he'll wake up worse than when he had his started his nap. So that's obviously not going to work. So when someone's only drunk a reviews, it's good enough to have a walk of a meal and a little bit of a nap. More than a reviews doesn't work. For derech mil may figure You're going to tell me that just walking one mil is sufficient. For hotanya, we learned in a brisa. We're going to bring a whole story, and from it we'll learn. We'll bring out the relevant point. But for hotanya, my sebram and gamil show your roichei valachamor vahoyamahalech may akolixiv. Rabban Gamil was riding on his donkey, and he was going from Akko to Kiziv. 
They walk on horse with some bread on the side of the road or on the road. So he told Eli, please bring that bread with you. Pick it up and bring it with you. He called to the non-Jew. He said, Migvai, by his name, take this bread from Eli. Niftaloi Rebilai. Rebilai went and started chatting to um, Magvai. Says Omaloma Hechalato. He says, Where are you from? So Omale Ma'ayoro Shel Burgonim. I'm from the city of Hats. Mahashimcha, what's your name? Magvai Shmeini. Says, My name's Magvai. Klum Hekecho Rabon Gamliel Ma'olam. He says, Have you ever met Rabon Gamliel before? Says, I know, I saw Rabban Gamil call to you by name. Have you met him before? And like, um, he says, so he says, no, I'm alone, love. I've never met him. Says, We see from here that Rabban Gamil had Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh, I don't want to say Nevoa. We know there are different levels of Hashem's divine inspiration. Aha, we know the highest and greatest prophet. We learned in yesterday's parsha. The end is Moshe Avdol. There was no Novi as great as Moshe. He spoke face to face. Slightly, but that's Navua. Slightly lower level, level on Navua's other great prophets. And even in Navua, there's a spectrum of how, uh, of clarity. There's a lower level. It's not considered Navua, but it's Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration. You can know certain things from, uh, from Hashem. So, so Ramon Gamliel clearly had Navua because he could call this non-Jew by his name, even though he had never met him before. An interesting discussion. What was the point of the Ruach HaKodesh? Why did he... Like, what was the advantage? What did Rabban Gamil gain by knowing this non-Jew's name? Okay, um, different discussion. An, another discussion. It says, says, we learn three things from what Rabban Gamil did. It says, We learn that you must never walk past food. Uh, if you see food on the floor, you mustn't walk past it, you must pick it up. One of the reasons given is it's almost hakoras atov. Food sustains us, food nourishes us. So you treat it with you treat it with dignity. Vilomanu, a second point we learn. You go after majority of travelers. It seems even though there might be lots of Jews around, you're not sure whether something's kosher or not. You have to ask who who the majority of people who walk on that road. So Rabban Gamil didn't take the bread for himself because most of the travelers were non-Jews. And we know there's a Xaira, you're not allowed to have a bed bread baked by a non-Jew. So he said, so he gave it to a non-Jew. Volomadno, and we learn a third thing. The chomets of a non-Jew after Pesach is mutarbano. It seems this event must have taken place shortly after Pesach. And there's a halacha that if a Jew owns chomets on Pesach, I doesn't say you have a loaf of bread in your bread bin and you keep it for Pesach. It's forever Osur Bahano. You're not allowed to get benefit from it. There's a discussion. What about Chomets that a non-Jew owned over Pesach? So Rabban Gamliel's paskening that Chomets that was owned by a non-Jew over Pesach, you can get benefit from. And that's, you've got to remember that we rely on this. This is how we paskin because we sell our Chomets. Imagine if there was this law. If Chomets of a non-Jew was Osur over Pesach, you could never have more than a, you could never have a whiskey. Because that would be owned by a non-Jew over Pesach. And some for 15 Pesachs, some for 12 Pesachs, some for 5, year, five Pesachs. But whiskey's always been aged for at least a few years. So that would be, so we rely on, that's how we pass in that 
chametz owned by a non-Jewish Pesach is permitted after Pesach. And Kivain Shehigia Lichsiv. So they carried on. Remember, Rabban Gamliel was traveling to Akko to Ziv. So they carried on. Someone came to Rabban Gamliel to get his neder and out. So Amal Lazer Sheimo Klum. Shasinu reviews Yain al Tilki. He said, Did we not? He said to the one who was with him to Rabbi Lai, Did we not drink some Italian wine? So Amal Lahain, yes, we did. Im Kain, Yatayalach, Rinu, Adshe, Yafig, Yeneinu, Yaininu. Says, Okay, so let this person who wants his neder annulled walk after us until we sober up. We can't, we can't get involved in annulling his neder until we sober up. Says, Vyatayalach, Rain, Gimu, Midim, Avshegir, Lesulma, Shiltsur. Um, and they walked for three mil until they reached the ladder of Tsur, uh, or Tyre, or the Rocky Hearts, whatever Tsur Tzur is. Kiven Shegil, Tsur Tzur, Yorad Rabban Gamil Min Achamor Vinisate Vyoshev Vihitiloy Nidro. Rabban Gamil got off his donkey, he wrapped himself in his palace like he would for a normal court case, and he permitted this man's neder. Baharbeit Vorim Lomanu Boise Shawilan. Many, many things from Rabban Gamil. Firstly, Lomanu, we learn Shereviz Yainal Tilki Meshaker, that a Revius of Italian wine makes someone drunk. And you can't paskin after having drunk a little. Velomadnu, and we also learn Shikur Al Yore, a drunk person can't paskin, can't judge a case. How do we see that? Because he wouldn't annul this person's neder until he had sobered up. Velomadnu, a third thing we learn, Shederech Mefiges Ayayin, that walking, traveling, dispels the wine, sobers one up. Velomanu, a fourth thing we learn, Sha'in may fear in the Dorim, Loi Rochov, Veloi Mahalech, Velo Oimed Eloyoshev. You're not allowed to annul a neder while riding or while walking or while standing. You have to actually be sitting. I'm more similar, as we'll see just before we go forward uh, further, to keep in your mind to annul a neder, how similar is it to a normal based in, like a judge issuing a verdict, going through a court case? Or how similar is it more to like how we do Hattaris Nadorim, kind of, don't want to use the word, but haphazard. Like you just got to get three people together or one expert and you tell them why you want, that you want to annul the netter and they say yes. How similar does it have to be? Okay, but Katani Mears, however, we, one of the things we learned from Rabban Gamliel, Shloisha Milin, three mil. Now when we were learning at the top of the page, how far did we say you have to travel to sober up? One mil. How far did Rabban Gamliel travel to sober up? Three mil. So the Gemara says, Shiny Anatilki the Meshaker Tvei. No, Italian wine is different because that's more, uh, it has a higher alcohol percentage. So therefore it affects you worse, and therefore walking, traveling one mil is not enough. You have to travel three mil. Says wait, but Rab Nachman said in the name of Rabbi Baravua that if you have more than a revius of wine, which obviously having a revius of Italian wine is the same effect, has the same effect. Walking doesn't help, it bothers you, it confuses you even more, and so to sleep. So he says, no, rock of shiny. Walking doesn't help if you've had more than a revis, but riding does help. Oh, he says, Oh, well, now you've come on to this. You can also say, what's the difference? Why did Rabban Gamil go three mil as opposed to one mil? Because riding is different. 
Uh, it depends how you're moving. If you're walking, then you only have to walk one mule. And not only that, if you had more than a reverse of one, or it seems you had an extra strong one, a strong, uh, you had a tequila or something, I don't know, then you wouldn't be then going more than a, then it wouldn't help to walk. However, riding, firstly, to ride to dispel one, you have to travel more than a mule, you have to travel three mil, and not only that, it also helps if you've had even more to drink. Now again, wait. Rabban Gamliel, we said that one of the things we learned from Rabban Gamliel is that he, you have to sit to annul a neder. But Rabban Nachman told us that you can stand, you can walk, you can ride. He says, no, tonight here, it's actually not like it's tonight. The Ikalamanda Omar, Poishim Becharata. The Ikalamanda Omar, Ain Poishim Becharata. How do you annul a neder? One opinion holds you Poishim Becharata. Rashi explains, that means the Chochom has to actually think and deliberate. He has to find the underlying reason why the person would, annul, would not have made this neder. I almost, he has to ask the person the following question and they have to analyze, find a way to do this, is if you would have known X, would you have still made the neder? Now that takes a little bit of thought and thinking and working out. And therefore, that's, therefore you, if that's the case, you would not be allowed to walk around, stand up, be drunk, you have to, or have had something to drink. You have to have your wits about you. Almost the like just an example. Let's say someone says, I take a netter, I'm not going to have uh, meat for the next year. And then their daughter gets engaged and they want to meet at the wedding. So the Chochum could ask them, if you had no, or they could tell the Chochum, had I known my daughter was going to get married, I would never have made the netter. That's a Pesach. So that, but again, that often takes work. According to the other opinion, Poitzchen Becharata, um, you don't have to have a specific reason. The Chochem, the, he goes up to the Chochem, he says, I don't want to have this neder to stand. The Chochem is able to say, okay, your neder is cancelled. Now that doesn't take any deliberation, any thought, any effort. And in that case, you could rely on, therefore that would be the Tanu who holds you could walk around while annulling a neder, etc. And we know this is how Rabban Gamliel Paskin, because um, Rabbi Ravua said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, how did Rabban Gamliel annul this neder? He says, There are those whose expressions, whose speech is like a piercing sword, but the speech of the sages heals, cures. What is the, what's the explanation of this possible? Anyone who takes a neder, a proper vow, actually deserves to be stabbed. with the sword. The chachomim can fix it by annulling it. What's it saying? What Rabban Gamliel, what Rabban Gamliel said to this person, he said, Did you know that you deserve to die if you take a neder? As the Pasuk says. And when he says, oh, had I known that, I would never have taken the neder. Well, now you've undone it. But what do we see? Rabban Gamliel found an excuse, a petach, to, um, to undo the neder. So we see that's how Rabban Gamliel paskened, unlike the other opinion that you can just annul it. Omar, another point, he says, you're not allowed to just walk past food. He says, that was all where Jewish girls weren't so involved with witchcraft. That's when you walk past food, you make sure to pick it up. 
says, But in the latter generations that so many Jewish women are involved with witchcraft, don't pick it up. It's dangerous. Some, it seems somehow they put some spells or things on the bread, and if you took it, then they, you were open to their spells. And Tana Shlimin Ma'avrin persisting Ain Ma'avrin. They taught that full loaves of bread you leave because of witchcraft, but little pieces you can pick up. Are you telling me um, they don't do witchcraft on small pieces of bread, only on whole loaves or whole rolls? Says Vohoksiv, we learned in the Apostle, you've desecrated, my people have desecrated me, with um, sheaves of barley and pieces of bread. He's criticizing, the prophets criticizing the Jews for their involvement in witchcraft, and he speaks about pieces of bread. So we see they do, do witchcraft, they do witchcraft on pieces of bread. He says, no, it's shakli ba'agrayhu. No, those pieces of bread are they paid. Either their payment for doing spells on different people was in pieces of bread, but not that they actually did spells on pieces of bread. Just one, intro, one thing to think about. So what would you say nowadays? You're walking on the road and you see some bread, you see some food on the floor. Should we say this halach of Ein Mavirin ala Oichlin? Well, let's say up until early on in 2020, I would have said, yes, you pick it up. You don't have to worry about, uh, about uh, witchcraft. Now I would say uh, there's pro- there, are other con- there are other things to worry about and maybe don't touch uh, food and things you don't know where they've been and who's touched them and there's germs and other health uh, considerations that maybe you, maybe you shouldn't pick up the food that you find lying on the floor. But okay, that's interesting. Again, I think the, the main point is for us at home to be aware. I mean, obviously, you're walking around your house, there's some food on the floor. Pick it up. Don't just leave it there. Um, we see here. And again, I think it's to instill in us. Again, I don't think it makes a difference to the loaf of bread, whether it's sitting on the floor or the counter. The bread's inanimate. But it's to foster in us an awareness of the bracha that Hashem has given us. He's given us food. We can uh, thank Hashem. We, we appreciate that and therefore we, um, we treat our food with dignity. I mean, we also learned, trying to remember where, I think it might have been Chulin, that there's, the, there's, a, there's a specific demon over breadcrumbs. And if people treat breadcrumbs with uh, disregard and just stamp on them, etc., it can lead to poverty. But I think it stems from this same idea of we have to, we as people who appreciate our food, we appreciate the nourishment, and we appreciate the bracha that's given to us with, with our food, um, we, uh, we treat it with dignity. Okay, and we'll leave it there for today.